Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did, and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, so listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing, so best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all, and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind, and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about, and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello folks, hope you're well. This week I'm going to be interviewing uh, John Sutherland, who will probably need no introduction to many of you. He... Uh, wrote two books that were very successful, one called Blue, Keeping the Peace and Falling to Pieces, which was a autobiographical account of his police career and specifically the fact that he had a very serious nervous breakdown uh, at the rank of Chief Superintendent, uh, which ultimately required him to uh, leave the job that he loved, uh, taking medical retirement. Uh, and he also wrote uh, another book called Crossing the Line, Lessons from a Life on Duty, which is split into uh, a number of chapters which talk about specific policing challenges of the 21st century. And both books did extremely well. And John was very kind and endorsed my book. I think it's probably fair to say that uh, John and I are quite different uh, individuals, I suppose. I probably think of myself as a slightly swearier version of John Sutherland. Um, I don't suppose he would probably argue with that. But uh, no, it was great to chat to John and um, talk about writing and some of his experiences uh, as an author. We also talk about his book, which is going to be coming out later this year, which is his first novel slash thriller um, called The Siege which uh, falls back on his some of his experiences as a hostage negotiator. But before I do, uh, before I go into that interview, um, just worth covering a few issues that have been in the headlines in the last week or so. Uh, the first one I want to start with is the highly publicised um, issues around the strip searching of a 15-year-old black girl in a school in Hackney, which has caused a massive kerfuffle um, and uh, resulted in uh, fairly significant demonstrations on the streets of Stoke Newington at the weekend, just gone. Many, many hundreds, thousands of people turning out to protest against the fact that that child was treated in the way that she was. So um, just caveat everything I'm going to say with I haven't read a full account of why 
police were called to the school specifically, whether there were any other factors around uh, elevated levels of risk, or I also don't know what the officers said uh, who are subject to the investigation by the Independent Office of Police Complaints. Um, so there's lots of gaps in my knowledge. So I'm obviously going to be a little bit careful about what I say, but I suppose what I would say generally is um, that that news really was quite shocking to me. I really struggle to understand why a child was strip searched um, in that way. The allegation being that she smelled of cannabis. Well, the reality is that uh, my daughter lives in Hackney and I go down to visit her from time to time. And let's just say that there is a very strong smell of cannabis generally in, in large parts of London and Hackney's no exception to that. Um, so hardly surprising that anyone smells of cannabis sometimes uh, in, in certain parts of the country. And that's nothing, no reflection on people who live in Hackney. It's just part of the reality of living in Britain in 2022. So for me, uh, the decision to strip search a child in those circumstances, unless there was other very, very serious risks associated. So for example, if she had been seen threatening another child with a weapon, which may be then, um, you know, considered to have been secreted on her person somewhere, uh, and maybe required, um, you know, a more thorough search to locate that weapon, for example. Um, but, but I'm not hearing any of that. And it seems to me that this was a grossly disproportionate um, act against a child. So um, it's been interesting watching and listening to some of the debates being played out about this on social media, on LinkedIn and various things. And you know, the usual um, allegations being made that, oh, this is clearly, you know, a racist incident, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sort of seeing or hearing anything to suggest that that, that race was particularly uh, a motive there. I think it was, it falls into more likely to be falling into the category of just really terrible decision making. So uh, someone said to me the other day, so what would you have done? You know, um, I said, well, it's quite simple, really, that um, for me, police should not generally be get going into schools unless there is a really quite severe, uh, serious threat. Um, uh, there are very highly trained and experienced officers who act as schools-based officers in certain secondary schools, and that is a quite a specialist role. And it's very important that and they do some fantastic work working with teachers, building trust with staff, uh, getting to know the kids, being able to spot, you know, those kids who need some additional support. Um, and, and really the times when they would be in, using sort of enforcement activity within a school would be very few and far between. So for me, um, I would have seen that as a safeguarding issue all day long. In other words, the school should have identified that as a safeguarding issue. Um, mum, parent or guardian should have been uh, invited to come to school, to speak to the school um, 
the police probably should not been involved at all in something as relatively low level as that. And given that they were involved and they were called to the school, I definitely would not, if I'd been a supervisor, uh, and that's going to be a sergeant or inspector in that scenario, and somebody asked my advice on that one, I'd say, um, report it as a safeguarding issue unless there's some other very serious risk or threat associated with that, in which case um, uh, the child should have probably been um, brought to the police station, should have been um, searched in the, in the presence of an appropriate adult or a parent or guardian, um, and then safeguarding issues should have sort of kicked in there really so that should have been sort of a strategy discussion I suppose between the police and social services and the school. So really I think um, I'm really struggling to see why the officers did what they did um, and, and I do think there's probably issues there about a lack of supervision and certainly I'm hearing a lot of stories um, of very inexperienced sergeants who don't really know what they're doing now who've got very little service themselves um, or, or sergeants who are stretched so thinly across massive teams or geographies that they just haven't got the capacity to supervise effectively. So that then leaves officers to kind of wander around kind of um, muddling their way through and given the uh, age and profile of many uh, response officers these days they are um, uh, very very inexperienced. And, uh, and making some potentially making some really terrible decisions that uh, you know will unfortunately end up with this sort of very high profile response. So um, and rather uh, annoyingly, Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, has again waded into this and is insisting on all of the officers who were involved in that incident being. Uh, it, the, the matter being treated as gross misconduct. Uh, I think the initial assessment, severity assessment, was misconduct, whereas he's insisting that it's gross should be gross misconduct. So, uh, really interesting. Um, Sadiq Khan is is clearly getting way too big for his boots. Uh, he's clearly been emboldened by uh, sacking, effectively sacking Cressida Dick, and I, in my view, he's. St stepping into areas of decision-making that he's got no place to be. Um, I didn't realise, actually, until I saw this article the other day, that prior to becoming Mayor of London, he was a partner in a law firm uh, that had investigated... Uh, he, he was head of a particular part of that law firm that specifically only investigated allegations against police. And apparently he was involved in something like 300 investigations into policing as a civil rights lawyer. So let's just say that Sadiq Khan is no friend of policing. And any pronouncement that he makes about policing needs to be seen in the context that he has got a very clear agenda, a very clear anti-police agenda. He's had that agenda for a very long time. So let's not pretend anything other than that. The other story that uh, hit the more policey news media this week was the uh, announcement that on average, 
10% of the officers who have joined the service under the Operation Uplift programme, the 20,000 uh, recruitment target that Boris Johnson and Priti Patel um, had announced to try and get the service back up to the same level of staffing uh, that had existed back in 2010. 10% of those officers have left um, before their two years are up um, for all sorts of different reasons. And in some forces it's as high as 20%, so one in five, uh, not a good situation. But then, you know, we've heard uh, lots of uh, accounts of officers not being prepared for the realities of doing the job, uh, not realising that they're going to have to work weekends and nights, uh, not realising they're going to have to work bank holidays and all this sort of nonsense, not realising they're going to have to get involved in physical confrontations with people. And then you add into that the uh, rather pitiful starting salary for for new officers of you know nineteen thousand pounds and there was an interesting article in the police oracle magazine that was talking about how officers working shifts uh, were also now being expected to do an awful lot of studying in their own time uh, for these policing degrees that most experienced police officers myself included uh, believe are completely unnecessary so there you go. Okay, right, let's get into the interview with John Sutherland. There we hey, are. There we go. Sorry about that. Oh, no, no, it's my fault. Um, because it, it um, doesn't, I have to say, it doesn't take much to confuse me when it comes to technology. <laughs> Don't worry, it's my fault. Because what happens is sometimes when I set up the Zoom invite, uh, Google, because I use Gmail, Google tries to elbow hijack elbow zoom out of the way and force you to use google hangouts so um so there you go so um are you got do you want to use your video or are you are you being shy oh sorry is that not on either no well, i can hear you but i can't see you hang on hey there, there we, we go. go can you see me now <laughs> excellent good man excellent how are you you're right oh, lovely to meet you i know yeah well this is the weird thing isn't it because um you know we've exchanged tons of messages haven't we and uh, LinkedIn messages and emails and whatnot. And then you, um, you know, unbelievably generously and kindly uh, did an endorsement for the book. That was uh, a pleasure. You write which, really well. <laughs> which I'm super grateful for. Um, How's the book doing? Yeah, I think it's doing okay. I mean, it's a funny one, isn't it? So, I mean, I'm interested to get your thoughts on all of this stuff. Um, yeah, I'm just just to check. I'm recording. I'm just recording the audio. I'm not recording the video, by the way. Yeah, no, so, no, that's um, fine. You can do whatever fine. you like. I'm, okay, brilliant. Um, yeah, uh, I think it's a funny one, isn't it? Because when the book comes out, it, the hardback thing is an interesting one. I'd be interested to see what your experience of all this was, because um, not everybody buys hardbacks, do they? Um, no. so, so it sort of goes off a bit like a scalded cat at the start, doesn't it? And everybody who's interested in it uh, buys it, which is great. And, you know, according to the publishers, Bite Back, they say that it's doing well, uh, as well as, you know, they would want it to do. So that's always positive, isn't it? Um, but then uh, it seems to kind of fall off a bit, a bit of an edge of a cliff. And I think yeah. all the people who want to buy it immediately have done it and and then everybody else kind of um then it goes a bit quiet did you find that yeah yeah absolutely really absolutely so so i i mean i was incredibly fortunate with the first book because i i think i was sort of i was more or less the first i in fact i was still a serving copper at the time that blue mm. came out 
So I was yeah. probably the only serving copper and one of the first sort of coppers to write about policing into the kind of the publishing mainstream. Yeah. Um, and there was enough interest in it that because I've been publishing a blog for a couple of years before, yeah. so I sort of built up this little following. Yeah. And there was enough interest in it in the first week to catapult it into the Sunday Times list. Wow. Um, but the following week, it immediately dropped out again. <laughs> I know, yeah. Um, I know. I know that. So, well, I never made that. I never made the Sunday Times list, but but I know that feeling of thinking, God, I was sitting in sort of I went to number one almost straight away in emergency service. I was going, bloody hell, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh, and then it sort of gradually, gradually. Well, if gradually. it offers you any consolation, <laughs> my second book didn't get into the Sunday Times top ten. <laughs> yeah, I mean the thing is, it was just uh, one of those things. It's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? And it, it kind of um, it it's not good for your uh, anxiety levels or <laughs> no. your sense of self worth sometimes because on yeah. some in some respects, as you know, putting yourself out there in a book is incredibly nerve wracking. Well, yeah. I find it incredibly nerve wracking. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And uh, and you just think you've got all sorts of you've got that gremlin on your shoulder saying, "Oh God, this is why you're doing this, you idiot." you know, and all of this yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, I mean, the night before the book was published, I was a fucking nervous wreck. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I just, I hardly slept at all. Um, I just felt, I was, I woke my wife up in the middle of the night and she was like, oh, for God's sake, just go to sleep, you know? And I said, um, I said, okay, listen, um, I think I've made a terrible mistake here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway it's been absolutely fine but uh, so did so after your initial sort of um you know meteoric sales um did it sort of uh peter out a little bit for you yeah yeah i i, I should just say just time wise i need yeah. to go at 12 15 if that's, that's absolutely okay. yeah 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 that's um, i've just fine. got a meeting in town no um, no that's plenty yeah of time. no absolutely it's um yeah, it kind of flamed like a comet in that first week mm. um, uh, and then sort of faded away. But the, the lovely thing with Blue is, I mean, it's now five years old. Gosh. Um, and it's still selling. Right. Not, not in vast numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it's still being bought, particularly by people who are new to policing. So right. there are lots of kind of young recruits who are really... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And did you find there was a big difference between... Um, hardback sales and paperback sales yeah do you know i i kind of i i hadn't ever paid too much close attention to the numbers i'd i'd have to go back to my publishers and ask mm -hmm. i mean I, so i think when the paperback came out it, it didn't initially sell that same kind of first week monstrous mm -hmm. amount but it, it's they the publishers in fact when i sort of first signed with them they they described it as a book with a long tail right yeah, yeah. As in, they they felt that it would remain current for, for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it, you know you you can't it, it's, you know you can't help yourself. Every now and then you walk into a bookshop and just have a little check. Is my book there? <laughs> and most of the time these days it isn't oh, because they can only stock so many. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but the sort of you know the online market helps to keep it ticking over yeah i mean poor J james uh, at bite back jim stevens at bite back who's the sort of managing editor there or the managing director or whatever you want to call it i'm not sure how, how it all works in the publishing world but the boss and yes. uh, he he um 
he he must be absolutely sick of me by now. I'm torturing him, you know, once a month or so. So, James, how's it going? How's it going? And, um, you know, do you think of um, maybe you should do this or do that? And he's like, no, no, it's fine. And he <laughs> he kind of says similar stuff to me that that you had said to you probably that that this is an issue book that will be relevant for a long time. Um, you know, the, the thing that'll really make you giggle is when you find, if you haven't already, at some point in the not too distant future, you find it on one or two um, university reading lists. Um, <laughs> so for people doing kind of policing and criminology well, degrees. Well, actually, it's funny you should say that because I had a message via LinkedIn from um, uh, an ex-colleague who's now who left the police um, uh, got thoroughly fed up with it, was suffering very high levels of stress and anxiety, and she checked it in, and she's now lecturing at uh, in police policing at one of the Midlands universities, and she sent me a message on LinkedIn with a photograph that I'd been quoted in one of her pupils, one of her Perfect. students' um, essays, and, um, and and I even it even had me in the bibliography at the end. <laughs> And my, said, my my best one of those was being sent um, a, an extract from a student's essay where they had credited me with inventing Lockhart's principle. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> well, I said to uh, I said to her, I said, does that mean I'm a, I'm an academic? I, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm a thought a thought leader. But uh, yes. listen, listen, John, um, I'm I'm really 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 uh, pleased to have you on the podcast because um, you know you you you'll need no introduction to. Uh, many of the cops out there, you know, in terms of your book Blue and Crossing the Line, you know, both um, done really, really well um, and, and fantastic, fantastic reads. So congratulations on both of those books. They've, they've done mm. really well. And I think they've been fantastic in terms of putting policing in in sort of front of the minds of, of the general public and opinion formers, policymakers, etc. So, so yeah, so um, there's kind of two things I want to kind of focus on in, in this. Really, firstly, I want to talk about a little bit about policey stuff, not so much about your career, because I think that's well documented in your book, um, more just generally about sort of police stuff, generally what's been going on recently. And then I want to sort of move into, you know, the, the kind of writing stuff. We've covered a little bit of that, but there's other stuff I just want to get your thoughts on, really. So in terms of policing... Um, We've obviously had a really torrid time of it, haven't we? Well, I say we, and I'm not in the job anymore, nor are you, but, you know, I still um, tend to think of myself as a police officer, as I'm sure you probably still do as well. Um, the services have had a really torrid time of it, hasn't it, recently? So um, what are your thoughts on, let's use Cressida as a, a sort of a vehicle to sort of talk about some of that stuff. What are your thoughts on what's happened with Cressida laterally? Gosh. Uh, let's let's dive straight in with the really big questions. <laughs> um, well, so on on the subject of Cress specifically, and uh, she prefers to be called that, so I'm not being overly familiar. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I should say up front that I know her personally. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so inevitably, I'm I'm less than objective. Yeah. yeah on, yeah. on the subject, I know her personally, and I think the world of her. Mm. Um, I think she's a remarkable person. I think she's a remarkable police officer. And I think she's been a remarkable public servant mm. for 40 years. Um, and on a personal level, I, I owe her an enormous debt of gratitude. At the time I had my nervous breakdown, which is almost nine years ago now, mm. um, she was at the time AXO, Assistant Commissioner Specialist Operations. So she was in charge of counterterrorism for the UK. Yeah. Pretty serious job mm -hmm. pretty full diary 
um, mm -hmm. pretty full plate. Um, mm -hmm. And at that particular stage, we knew one another as colleagues, um, uh, albeit she was much more senior than me. But, but we'd never worked together. I'd never worked for her. So at the point when I was ill, she had no professional responsibility for me at all. She mm -hmm. had no professional duty of care for me at all. Mm -hmm. But she heard that I was ill, um, mm -hmm. quite seriously ill. And, and as AXO, she cleared her diary one mm -hmm. day mm -hmm. and she came to see me at mm -hmm. my home. And oh, well. Well, she sat with lot, me at my kitchen table for at least an hour um, wow. and was in no hurry to go at the end of that hour. Mm. And she came for no other reason than that she cared. Mm. Uh, and I think one of the things that has always marked her out is her love for policing mm -hmm. and her love for the people who do the job, Yeah, which is something that I passionately share. Mm -hmm. So on a personal level, I couldn't think any more highly of her than I do. Yeah. Um, uh, on a personal level, I couldn't be any more grateful to her than mm -hmm. I am. Mm -hmm. So that's the first part of my yeah. kind of slightly longer than intended answer. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's good. There is, it's not quite a but, it's, it's more of a however. Mm. Um, however, the, the Met has got itself into a real pickle. Mm. Um, and the last, and we're talking here about an organisation that I love with all of my heart and soul. You know, mm. I am involved and forever will be mm. involved in a lifelong love affair with the Met and its people. You know, mm. I care passionately about it, mm. but I'm not a blind apologist for it, which yeah. is something that I often say. And, and in the last couple of years, there are some things that have gone really badly wrong. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, the, the most obvious of which is the kidnap and rape and murder of Sarah Everard. And mm. yeah, I'm, I'm not going to give the suspect a name. I don't ever want to hear his name mentioned. Mm. But, but the fact that that crime beyond comprehension was committed by a serving police officer, I, I mean, where, where do you even start with that? Yeah. Uh, mm. And... He, you know, at the same time, I, I I think of the murders of Bieber and Nicole in the North London Park and mm, mm. two PCs who saw fit to take photos at the murder scene and circulate it amongst friends and colleagues. And mm. I think about the more recent breaking story about the Charing Cross case and yeah. the other officer who is standing trial for multiple rapes. And, you know, I'm, mm. I... I make no comment about cases that are sub judice mm. But that's not a pretty picture. No. Um, uh, I, I, think, I, I think, can I, can I just, um, not, I'm not, this is not a case of challenging what you're saying at all. It's just to sort of add some additional context, maybe. Do you not think, John, these things have always happened in policing? In, in a very large, particularly the Met, because it's such a big organisation, and therefore, by definition, statistically, you're always going to get a small number of these horrific people, these awful, terrible people in a large organisation. I 100% I, I agree. And, and you and I met one or two of them, I suspect, during the course of our careers, and, mm. uh, and I hope we did the right thing in, in response. 
Um, I think Sarah's case, thank God, is utterly exceptional. Um, it's a once in a generation event. Um, but but so I, I so I don't think something like that is is ever present. But but I think much of the rest of what we've talked about, yes, because policing is a reflection of society. Mm. And society contains all that is right and wrong and good and evil and everything in between. Mm. But, but I'm going to give myself a couple of butts to that. Now, number one is I, I think we're past the point where we can just fall back on the bad apple thesis mm. um, because it's clearly more than just one or two. Mm. Even though it is still a significant minority, I absolutely believe that to be true. It's clearly more than one or two. Mm. And, and I think we've got to do better than just say bad apples. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because when I, I you know, I, I try to listen to as many voices as I can. I try to listen to as many opinions as I can, um, particularly people who don't necessarily agree with me and especially people whose lived experience is different to mine. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so one of my really close friends, a man I admire enormously, who uh, runs a youth violence charity, is a black community leader in southeast London, just a fabulous man and a very dear friend. And, you know, we're, we're able to have really honest, uncomfortable conversations with one another. And, and from time to time, the challenge goes both ways. Yeah. But one of the things that he'd been saying to me over the last three or four months is, you know, can you not see that large proportions of the community, particularly in London, particularly the black community, mm. have lost confidence in the Met and mm. have lost confidence in Cressida. Mm. And he was even surprised by the number of people, for example, going online to defend her mm. in the aftermath of Sadiq Khan's appalling treatment of her. And mm. let me be clear that that's what I think about what the mayor did. Mm. And he said to me, do people not see that we've lost confidence, that we've lost trust? Um, and that's a painful thing to hear mm, as yeah. somebody who cares about the job, but also speaking as a Londoner. Uh, yeah, some, I yeah. live in South London, in central mm. London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm raising three children here, mm. you know, and, uh, and the Met can't function effectively. Yeah without the trust and confidence of the community that it serves. So, uh, 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 and so back to the bad apples thing. Yeah. And I, I don't know how clearly I'm explaining myself here, but I think every time we turn around and say, ah, oh, but it's just a bad apple or two, mm. there's a danger that we further damage the confidence of the community because yeah. they will say, but that's not what I'm seeing. That's not what yeah. I'm hearing. That's not what I'm experiencing. Mm. And we've got to listen to those voices. Yeah, so what's interesting to me, John, and I don't disagree with anything you just said there. I, I think it's, it's um, you know, incredibly well-balanced and sensible. What, what I'm struggling with a little bit at the moment, and I don't know the answer to this question, so I'll just caveat that with that, you know, is to what extent, if at all, is all of the stuff that's been going on recently a symptom of what has been done to policing over the last sort of 10 to 12 years by this government. And what I mean by that is 
I'll use I know exactly of, what you mean. <laughs> I'll use a sort of a military sort of analogy. You think about things like, and I'm not trying to draw a direct comparison between these two incidents because it's it would be crass to do so. But um, if you look at what happened in Vietnam with the My Lai massacre, where you had a uh, pl- sort of a company of US Marines, I think they were, I'm not sure of the Marines, but they were US soldiers who went completely rogue who um, discipline had broken down. Um, they, they ended up murdering um, dozens of innocent Vietnamese villagers. Um, and for me, there's a real worry that because of the very mean-spirited, hostile behavior displayed towards policing by this government over the last 10 to 12 years, it has created a mindset in, in amongst some officers who basically, it's a bit like old Millwall fans, isn't it? Everybody hates us and we don't care. Mm. Do you think there's anything in that? I do. Uh, and I, I think you're absolutely right to raise it. But that, so let's take a couple of steps back to 2010, to the arrival of the coalition government, to David Cameron as prime minister, to Theresa May, as Home Secretary uh, and scan over the sort of the so seven to 10 years that followed. I mean, it would be impossible to overstate the catastrophic harm done to policing mm. by the political leadership of this country. Mm. Um, I've said that and I've written it before. It's in my books, it's in my blogs, but, but it, I'm, I'm tempted to say that, that the government has done more damage to policing in this country than any organised crime group mm, yeah. could ever I, begin to no, I totally agree. I said, that, I, said that exact, I said that exact thing in my book. And, I and, and you know, and, and the facts are pretty clear. You know, from 2010 to 2018, the government cut 44,000 mm. officers and staff from policing in England and Wales. Mm. They took hundreds of millions of pounds from budgets they effectively dismantled neighborhood policing Mm. breaking those local relationships of trust that had been established over years if not decades they closed police stations removing those local footprints in local communities they diminished policing's proactive capability Mm. and at the same time they were doing something similar to the whole of the rest of the public sector. Mm. So the wider criminal justice system, but the social care system. Um, and, you know, we've, we, we found ourselves sort of a, a decade after the coalition government arrived with rising crime, certainly crime of the most serious kinds, rising demand, mm. principally as a, uh, this is, I'm talking about demand on policing, mm-hmm. um, particularly as a consequence of the huge gaps that had appeared everywhere else in the public sector and the expectation that coppers would pick up the pieces. Rising crime, rising demand, rising complexity, technology in particular, just making the job even more complicated than it was already. Mm -hmm. And rising risk, crime, demand, complexity and risk all going up, more police officers being more seriously injured, Mm -hmm. more frequently than certainly I could ever recall. And all of that happening as resources dropped off a cliff. 
So you found yourself in a position where we had fewer people with fewer resources doing a job that was more demanding, more difficult, and often more dangerous than it had ever been before. Mm. And all of that real world stuff was happening in a context where the political narrative about policing was relentlessly hostile. I mean, the police were racist, they were corrupt, Mm. they were misogynistic, they were incompetent, they were Mm. resistant to change. And it was a narrative that was picked up and echoed with glee in certain sections of particularly the right wing press. Mm the Mail, the Telegraph and the Sun being the worst offenders. Mm. Uh, and I think it's probably important that we put a name to the offenders in this yeah, yeah. case. And the problem with that narrative is this, that it lacked any semblance of balance. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, I've used the phrase once already, and I often use it. I'm not a blind apologist for the job. Mm. Um, you know, some coppers are racist, some mm. are corrupt, some yep. are misogynists, and they've got no place in policing. But yep. as we both acknowledge, they are still there. Um, and we should never hide away from that. We should mm. never shy away from that. I absolutely think that people in society have got every right to expect higher standards of police officers than they do of anyone else. Mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of the oath that we took when we joined, because of the powers that we were given, because of the yeah. position that policing yeah. occupies in society. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, So we should never shy away from that stuff. Mm-hmm. My contention has always been, though, that it's critical we find a degree of balance. Yeah. yeah. Because for every story someone from the Daily Mail could tell me of policing done wrong, mm-hmm. and I would defend his or her right to do so, and to ask bloody awkward questions as a consequence. Mm. But for every one of those stories, you and I mm. could tell a hundred mm. stories yeah. of the kind of heroism and humanity that would take people's breath away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when yeah. we'd got to the end of our list of a hundred, we could tell a hundred more. Yeah. And so, so that, in a sense, is the greatest harm of all. Yeah. 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 Um, and we as a society urgently need to rediscover our appreciation for the extraordinary men and women who do this extraordinary job that is yeah. policing. Yeah. So my, my fear, I suppose, I think we're on this completely on the same page on all this stuff. Um, my fear is that the morale within the organization just goes into a continuous decline uh, where um, there's almost like a self-fulfilling negative vortex, if that makes sense whereby um, the, the Tory government have effectively set the organisation up to fail um, by all of those things that they did and the decisions that they made knowingly. Um, and then surprise, surprise, the organisation starts to fail. Uh, the organisation continues to fail and then you get all of this stuff rearing its ugly head, the, the Charing Cross issues, um, you know, and, and I have no doubt whatsoever that there'll be a whole load more um, that are still kind of in the pipeline, so to speak. So just on, the, on that point, you know, and back to the issue of balance um, before we move on completely from Cress. Yeah. I don't think it's any coincidence that there have been a spate of cases coming to light mm. in the last year or two. Um, because as you and I, again, have acknowledged that they were always there. Yeah. But one of the reasons I think they're coming to light now is, is 
precisely because Cress has created an environment in the Met where these negative behaviours are challenged. Yeah. yeah. And where um, officers, in a way that they didn't when you and I joined, mm. feel confident to come forward and speak up about things that are clearly wrong. Yeah. You know, a, a huge number of the cases that we're hearing about have come to light mm. because good police officers have challenged the behaviour of bad police officers. Mm. Now, it's it's of limited consolation, but we shouldn't ignore the fact that that's been happening. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a bit like saying, you know, we had X number of allegations of domestic um, abuse 10 years ago uh, as a result of a lot of the good work that policing has done to reassure victims and provide a better sort of quality standards of care and investigation. We've now got way higher numbers of allegations of domestic abuse that doesn't mean that there was more domestic abuse today than there was yeah there is more exactly that. it just means that victims are more confident to come forward and tell you about what's been going on to them so so yeah you're you're absolutely right that you, you know by by lifting that stone you're going to find more aren't you and and then and then it seems rather um ironic that that by having created a culture where you're more willing to lift the stone and look underneath it you then get damned for doing exactly that don't mm -hmm. you so in terms of um i suppose this sixty-four thousand dollar question is how can we turn it around and i you know i looked with interest at some of the headlines from the um strategic review of policing i don't know if you had a chance to have a look at any of that stuff i mean it's a big old document nearly 200 pages but certainly looked at the headlines and i'll probably dive into it in more detail in due course but I mean, a cracking piece of work um but where do you what do you think what do you think the priorities are in terms of trying to turn this oil tanker around well, yeah, I've, I mean, I've written a bit about it. Uh, uh, if anyone wants to dig into my blogs from the last couple of months, it, you'll, you'll find some stuff and some suggestions there. I mean, some, some of it is basic nuts and bolts. Um, you know, one of the things that I find so depressing about the May and Cameron years and the so-called police reform programme is that their own successors within their own party have had to spend much of the last four or five years trying to undo the harm that's been done yeah you know and, and I, I i'm not going to give uh, boris a great deal of credit for what he keeps claiming a twenty thousand extra police officers mm. um that he's recruiting you know because uh, language matters they're not mm. extras they are an inadequate replacement for what was taken mm. um but but there is at least in that decision a recognition that 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 Cameron and May went far too far. Hmm. So, you know, my, my first nuts and bolts suggestion is there needs to be urgent and substantial reinvestment in frontline policing. Hmm. But that can't just be about getting as many people through the door as quickly as possible with hmm. all of its associated vetting risks and everything else. I think people understand that, that there needs to be a, a longer term slightly more considered plan mm. we need to be recruiting the best people mm. but we need to put proper money into it yeah, exactly can you do that for nineteen thousand pounds a year starting salary well absolutely you know pay and conditions is a big part of this if it you know 
we're incredibly fortunate in policing that you know nobody joins to get rich mm. um they join because they want to change the world mm. and and that's an utterly beautiful thing but we need to take care that we don't take that for granted mm. um we need yeah. to pay people what they're worth and what they deserve and and at the moment the, the kind of the police pay and conditions package is woefully inadequate mm. Yeah, you know, and yeah. we say this just as MPs are about to take another £2,000 plus pay rise. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the bottom line, the nuts and bolts is we need to hugely reinvest in, mm. uh, in frontline policing. We particularly need to reinvest in neighbourhood policing because yeah. that's the bedrock of, you know, every long-term good mm. that, coppering is capable of doing you mentioned the strategic policing review um i have had a bit of a read of, of it and published a short blog of my initial thoughts last week and one of the things they're absolutely bang on about and they're bang on actually about quite a lot of things not about everything um but they're bang on about quite a lot of things um and one of the things they're bang on about is that that, that we need to put prevention mm. right back at the heart of our policing model yeah yeah um you know, the old Pelian notion that it's far better to prevent a crime from happening in the first place than yeah, it is to yeah. try and catch the perpetrator. And that, and that was always the great, um, the, the great uh, advantage of having a really good neighbourhood team in your local yeah. ward, wasn't it? You know, they were, they were that very flexible uh, resource that you could call on to do all sorts of things, you know, whether that was the softer-edged um you know relationship building working in schools uh, youth clubs and all of that stuff that's really essential to spot the youngsters who are going off the rails and divert them quickly um you know as well as going out and locking up the the people who are making other people's lives a misery so so yeah so i, I do 100% agree um i do about neighborhood policing I do have a real fear because it was this is was my my background. Um, I do have a real a really real fear about uh, the viability of the detective response to serious more serious end of criminality. I um, mean, you're looking at what seven thousand vacant detective posts in England and Wales at the moment. Yeah. Um, Rock who's unable to recruit people to. Um, Basically, bottom line is people don't want to be detectives, you know, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. I think some of it's about money. Some of it's about the thankless nature of trying to service an increasingly dysfunctional criminal justice system and all of the bureaucratic demands of that. Um, so investigative wise, um, my great fear there is that so many of those detectives cut their teeth on local CID teams or public protection units. But, but after five, six, seven years, we'll end up as the detectives involved in serious and organised crime and counter-terrorism. And if you're not, then, you know, my only slight reassurance at the moment is that whilst volume crime is getting a terrible service, I still do believe that the most serious end of criminality still gets a good um, service, but I'm not convinced whether that is going to be the case in another four or five years, thus creating what I've described as potentially a national security crisis for the UK. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on, on any of that. 
Sorry, it's all a bit rambly, but, you know. No, 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 it's a good ramble, and it's an important ramble. I mean, I was a rubbish detective, so uh, I ought to confess that straight up front. Uh, I'm a pretty much lifelong lid. Um, I was a DS and a DI for a while, and I, mean, I, I hope I did some good, but, but my natural home was in a uniform. So I'm probably one of the least qualified people to comment. Um, and uh, you're absolutely right to point out the shortage uh, I think you're absolutely right to say that is a reflection in part of the wider dysfunction of the criminal justice system, of the CPS. And, you know, I know we like to blame the CPS for almost everything. Even that's not entirely their fault. Um, mm. If anything, they're even more under-resourced than, than we are. Um, so, you know, there's a huge bigger picture here that isn't just about policing. I, I don't I, I, one of the things I'm incredibly fortunate to do these days is to bumble around the country talking to officers from different forces, mm. um, primarily about actually the health and well-being. Mm. And I've in recent times been uh, a fairly regular visitor to one of the northern forces. Um, in fact, I was there last Friday um, doing the well-being input on their DS and DI course. So, you know, uh, frontline CID leaders. Um, and I, I guess the one thing we shouldn't lose sight of is that there's still an amazing bunch of people in there doing the job for all of the right reasons. Mm. Uh, and whilst people like you and I are, are absolutely correct to be sounding alarm bells about morale, um, we need to be careful that we don't talk it even further down than it is mm. already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we need to remind ourselves and, and remind them that no matter what is going on in the world around them, they're still extraordinary people mm -hmm. and they're still doing an extraordinary job in extraordinary times mm -hmm. and they're still changing the world. Yeah, yeah. No, and it might right. even only be sort of one day at a time, one life at a time, but, mm -hmm. yeah. but that's really the only way I know how to change the world. Yeah. So, I, so I, you know, I, I, I I refuse to believe that policing is done for in this mm. country mm. I, I, for no other reason than I have too much belief, passionate mm. belief in the women and men who are still doing the job. Yeah. 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 No, and I, I, I tend to think the same actually that um, whilst things are in a real mess at the moment, um, I don't think that absolute failure is an option. It's not an option. Mm. Um, it can't be because... Who else are you going to call? Exactly. And uh, I think things will possibly, uh, you know, without, you know, notwithstanding what you've just said about not wanting to talk things down, I do think things may take a further dip. Um, we've got, there's no money uh, in a post-pandemic world. Things are looking unbelievably insecure at the moment with everything that's going on in Ukraine. Um, you know, there's financially i can't see a big pot of money coming to policing realistically but the bottom line is um uh, to have more of the same or to let things spiral further downwards i just don't think is an option. this is where this is where the well, well two thoughts on that uh, one is the amount of money that the government has wasted in the last three years you know, for mm. example, on billions of pounds worth of PPE that they're now having to burn because it's useless. Mm. I mean, that takes my breath away. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in one of many phrases that came back to haunt her, you know, Theresa May's observation about magic money trees. Mm. Um, 
clearly doesn't apply in some cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the government has demonstrated that they can find money when they want to, mm. um, but they've also demonstrated that they're almost incapable of using it well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I mean, that's there's so much more that might be said about that. But 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 the more important point that I wanted to make on money is it. Politics is horribly short term in its thinking. Hmm. You know, it's almost impossible to get a politician to think much more than a year ahead. Because by the time you overlay national elections with local elections, with whatever else happens to be going on in the world, their timescales are forever being foreshortened. Hmm. Hmm. They want to be able to demonstrate a result by, well, preferably next Friday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and nothing that policing is involved in will mm. ever be fixed in anything like that kind of time. Mm. We, we need politicians who think much more long term. Because when they turn around and say to me about something to do with policing or criminal justice, more generally, you know, when the response from a politician is to say we can't afford to do that, my first instinct is to reply, but we can't afford not to. Yeah. Um, because the long-term cost of getting it wrong is substantially greater uh, yeah. than, than the short-term cost of, of thinking you're doing the right thing, but actually not. Does that so make here, sense? Yeah, it does. And, and that sort of segues quite nicely into one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, John, is... Um, have you considered a uh, future, potential future in politics? <laughs> you, you wouldn't be the first person to ask me that. And I'm happy to give you the same answer that I've given everyone else. I, I would rather poke my eye, eyes out <laughs> knitting needles than I, I, mean, I just, I, I, politics leaves me cold. Um, I, it infuriates me and angers me and depresses me. Um, and, uh, but, but actually on a very practical level, you know, one of the longer term consequences of my illness nine years ago, uh, is that I, I actually don't have either the physical or the mental capacity to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Um, I couldn't begin to cope with the stress and the strain. Yeah. yeah so, so it's not that I'm just luxuriating in my armchair and lobbying accusations at hapless politicians I mean, I'm, I'm not physically capable of it yeah. but I am in regular contact with politicians of all parties mm -hmm. um, and every time I speak to them I offer to help whether that's the policing minister or the shadow home secretary or whoever else it might be yeah you know I, I, I can't do a full-time job for anyone but, mm. but I'm willing to help on anything yeah because actually it's not good enough just to stand on the sidelines Chatting. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think there's probably a halfway house there, isn't there? I interviewed Ian Johnson, uh, who was uh, the ex-president of the Police Superintendent Association, and then went on to become uh, PCC of Gwent, uh, which was really, that must have been a really fascinating journey for him to go yeah, back, back into his own force two years after leaving as a chief superintendent. And then, surprise, surprise! I think he had a fallout with with his ex chief constable. who ended up resigning, sort of retiring. Um, I, I also interviewed uh, Kevin Hurley, who who went on to become the uh, PCC for Surrey, having been a Met chief superintendent. And um, 
yeah, it was interesting listening to some of their stories about the way that they were sort of treated by so-called professional politicians, really. You know, they were they were uh, made to feel deeply unwelcome in, 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 in that sort of culture. And, you know, and I've, I've often sort of thought, God, rather than sitting here carping on about how crap things are for policing, well, maybe I should put my money where my mouth is. But, but, but like you, I would rather boil my own head, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's, there's so many things that I would rather do, um, and I just can't... Th- I mean, I'm sure... I mean, when you know it's true, there are lots and lots and lots of really great MPs, aren't there? There's lots There and really lots are. And, and on both sides of the House. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I belong to no party. I never have, I never will, because I'm quite critical of the current government. I occasionally get accused of being a sort of Labour mouthpiece. Um, I'd, I'm nothing of the sort. Um, uh, I, I, I recognise that they've got an incredibly difficult job to do. Um, and I recognise, as you do, that there are some exceptional people in Parliament. Uh, the problem is they're not the ones who are in charge at the moment. Yeah. Um, but I will always offer to help wherever I can. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I... Like almost all of us, I joined policing because I wanted to make a difference. Um, and and that hasn't gone in retirement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I have my limitations in terms of my health physically and mentally in particular. Hmm. Um, and I have to be careful to sort of stick within those. But, but I'm not just going to be one of those who stands on the sidelines pointing out the error of everyone else's ways yeah yeah um it's not good enough just to point out what's wrong we need Mm -hmm. to be prepared to suggest what to do about it and to roll up our sleeves and and get involved definitely um so i want to have a change of direction now um i just want to talk about writing so oh yeah slightly lighter subject so um (laughs) (laughs) um did you always did you always enjoy writing it's well so here's an interesting thing um it was never part of any plan i ever had Hmm. um to to borrow a footballing analogy um you know jose Mourinho arrived at chelsea and described himself as the special one and Hmm. jürgen klopp arrived at liverpool and described himself as the normal one um if i was to try to describe myself in a writing context it would be as the accidental one Hmm. um all i'd ever wanted to be was a copper Uh, that, that was my life stream certainly in any professional sense uh, and I loved every single passing minute of it yeah. um, and I didn't have a plan beyond that you know I I, um, I was medically retired four years ago but I should have had my 30 in this September oh wow gosh if I that's hadn't a, got sick I'd still be here that's a strange that must be a slightly strange feeling wasn't it yeah yeah and so, so writing happened by accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, in the early days of my recovery from um, my breakdown, initially writing stuff down was just a means of trying to get my brain working again. Yep. It was literally that. It was the mechanics of, you know, my brain had completely packed up and shut down and uh, I was at very limited capacity. And so initially I started to sit down at the kitchen table for no more than about 15 or 20 minutes a day, because that mm-hmm. was as much as I could manage. Mm-hmm. And I just started to write things down to try yeah. and get my head working again. 
But what I very quickly discovered, uh, which of course many other people do, is is just how cathartic writing can be. Mm. Um, uh, and it became a form of therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and so I kept writing on and off for two or three years. And, you know, there was a little voice in the back of my head saying, mm. what about a book one day? Yeah. Um, how much but, of what you wrote initially, uh, how much had you written before you decided to write? This is probably looking more like a book now. Um, good question. I, I mean, I, I think probably, you know, once I'd switched my brain back on, um, there was something quite early on in the back of my mind about a book. But, but I, I, I wrote not in order to complete a book initially. I wrote because it was therapy, because it was good for me. And, mm. you know, when people ask my advice now about writing, um, on the rare occasions that happens, you know, one of the first things I say to people is just write for the love of writing. Mm. Just write because you love doing it uh, and because it's good for you. Yeah. Uh, and and then see where it takes you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I was incredibly fortunate that that over a period of two or three years, you know, what I was writing shaped itself into some sort of a story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I then found an agent who five years later, six years later, I'm still with and she's wonderful. Mm -hmm. And she believed in me and in what I was trying to do. And yeah. she helped me to kind of better marshal it and shape yeah. it. And, and she it. then found a publisher. And uh, that's an interesting one. So in terms of the final manuscript that kind of ended up going to print, how much, uh, this is sorry, this is a bit of a writer to writer question because I think it's probably, it might be a bit boring for anybody who's not interested in writing, but it's, I'm interested and it's my podcast, so I'm going to do what I want, you know? Fair uh, enough. <laughs> um, what percentage of the final manuscript um did uh your your first your fight what you thought was the final draft before it went to a publisher kind of was it sort of 70 percent? was it 80 percent? was it you know was or, or was it completely different what finally what you finally ended up with well so i was i was incredibly fortunate with my agent because in, in another life if she wanted to be she could be an editor right. i mean she's just brilliant with books in every way and so what I, I took to her somewhere between 60 and 70,000 words, and right. she then worked with me on it before we went to a publisher. Right. Um, and at her prompting, and she, you know, she didn't tell me what to write. She just asked me a series of questions. Right. Yeah, I mean, she literally, in electronic form, wrote notes in the margin of my manuscript. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more about this or... What did that mean? Or what was the impact of that on you? Or, you, you know, just nudging me, prompting me, kind of drawing me out, if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, and sort of under her watch, I probably wrote an extra 10,000 words. Right. But what it meant, because she and I had worked so hard on it, um, that by the time it got to a publisher, it, it, it then reached print almost unchanged. Right. Um, but that is, as I say, because I'd had some help before we ever got to... Yeah. Weidenfeld, who are the people who published it. And did you find getting a, an agent was was tricky? I mean, I I was fortunate, and then I went. I didn't. I don't have an agent. I went. I ended up giving my manuscript to someone who I thought might be interested, and it just 
who was well connected and uh, and they said oh, I already like this actually do you mind if I send it to my friend who's a publisher and he ended, he ended up sending it to two publishers and I got offers from both publishers which was a bit weird mm. um, so did it take you a long time to get an agent? Yeah, it, I, I mean, I, I, my story is the familiar one of multiple rejections before <laughs> finding the right person. I, th I think I must have contacted four, five, six different agents. I must have been to face-to-face -face meetings with at least two. Right. This is going back six or seven years now. Um, before I found Laura, and I, I found her via a colleague at work right. um, who happened to have been at college with her several years before. Mm -hmm. So is you, you know, I, I don't know how much you or people listening believe in fate or serendipity or call it whatever you want. But, mm. you know, Laura, who I've ended up with is 1000% the right person for me. Um, but, but, you know, as, as with anything in life that, that's worth doing, um, I guess you have to be prepared for one or two setbacks along the way. That's right. Um, and to recognize that they're a part of the journey. Yeah. Um, Definitely, yeah. But they're Some not things, failures. They're just things are never things are never what you expect them to be in any part of life, are they? So, yeah. um, so, yeah. uh, so your next book is out uh, in the summer, isn't that right? The siege. Um, so tell us about that because um, it's, it's uh, yeah. completely you've gone off piste, haven't you, with the novel this time? Haven't you? <laughs> I, I struggle to call it a novel, um, <laughs> but but it's sort of the next step in my accidental writing journey. Right. Okay. Um, so I had these two books that, that have been published that are both nonfiction that are about policing. Uh, and I discovered that I really enjoyed writing um, and I was wondering where to go next and sort of had been toying around with one or two nonfiction options, which you know may yet come to pass at some point in the future, mm. but, but nothing had quite stuck. Mm. And I realized that I'd, I'd for probably about four or five years, I'd had in the back of my head the basic outline of a story mm. and three characters. Yeah. And I've no idea where they came from or how they got there, but they'd been sitting in the back of my mind. And I realized that there was a story there that, that I wanted to tell, mm. or at least I wanted to have a go at telling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't know if I could write fiction. Yeah. Um, because it is a very different discipline to writing nonfiction. Yeah. Um, so, I, but I, I, it became this sort of itch I needed to scratch. Right. And so I started off by writing just two or 3,000 words, which right. I sent to my agent. Mm -hmm. and, and normally I'd, I'd wait a lot longer before sending her anything. But I said, look, I just, I don't want to waste your time, um, but I don't want to waste my time either. Just tell me whether you think there's anything in this mm -hmm. from the first, you know, little bit. Yeah. And she came back to me and she said, absolutely, I think you should keep going. And so I did. And uh, and sort of having decided to kind of venture into the world of fiction, I, I very early on decided that I wasn't going to write a story about a murder detective mm. um, for two principal reasons. Number one, because I never was one. Mm. Um, I mean, I'd been involved in lots of murder investigations, but I'd never been an SIO. Mm. Um but number two, because there are loads of people out there, including loads of ex-cops, mm. who are already writing brilliantly about mm. murder detectives. So the last thing you need is me doing the same. Mm. Um, so I wasn't a murder detective, but I was a hostage negotiator. Right. And there are far fewer books out there based around stories of negotiations. Yeah. So 
I thought, well, that's something I do know a bit about, and that's something perhaps I could write about. And so the story of the siege is a story told in real time over right. the course of about 10 or 12 hours. Right. Uh, and it features three main characters. Um, there's a much broader cast in the book, but it's three main characters. Uh, a hostage taker who is a right-wing extremist. He's right. a terrorist. Uh -huh. um, there's a group of nine hostages, but one in particular who we focus on. Right. Uh, and then a hostage negotiator. Who, so can I, again, ask you, is, can I ask you a really nerdy question? Then? Yeah. Um, do you write in um, first person or third person? And do you write in present tense or past tense? Because that's, that's a really writery, nerdy question, but it's really yeah, important, yeah. I think, you know? Well, so, so Blue, my first book, I, I wrote the entire book in the present tense. Yeah. Um, partly because I wanted to convey something of the urgency of policing. Yeah. You know, the relentless pace of it all. Yeah. Um, but no, the siege is written in the third person and in the past tense. Right. Yeah. Because uh, the reason I ask that question is because I am toying with the idea of writing a fiction book. And, you should. Uh, oh, God. It's a bloody nightmare because, you you know, when you've written something in uh, nonfiction, you oh, you're frozen. You still with me? Oh, I've got you oh, back now. You, no, froze, you, back. you froze there for a second. No, yes, so no, anyway, you did. what I was saying... I lost uh, you at the point where you said you were toying with the idea of writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, um, but as you know, because you've done it, and I haven't, and I'm absolutely crapping myself at the thought of it, because it's it's bloody hard compared to non-fiction, particularly if you're talking about it. In non-fiction, you're talking about something you know a lot about because you've done it. And, and all you need to do, I say all you need to do, but you need to just get it down on paper in a way that kind of makes sense and um, is written in a way that is in sort of hopefully engaging and people want to read. So, so that's relatively straightforward. But when you, I've started drafting out what I think could be a um, fiction book. I, like you, I wouldn't call it a novel. I'd call it more of a thriller, I suppose, than a novel. But oh my god, it's so different. It's as but it's different. It's like it's like some. It's like not even like writing. It's like playing a musical instrument or something. It's just so different. Um, so yeah, did you go any do any courses or anything like that or? I was having this conversation with my publisher last week. And no, I've, I've never done a writing course or, or anything like that. And, and that's, um, that's purely and simply a reflection of my personality. Hmm. Um, I'm just not very good at sitting still and, <laughs> and kind of reading an instruction manual or, or that's, I, I, I just, I am by nature much more instinctive. Yeah. So writing for me is is a heart and soul thing rather than a head thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, clearly, I have to engage my brain at some point along the way. Um, but I, I just, and it's it's not better or worse. Everyone just has their own different approach. But but my approach is is the sort of the unschooled, instinctive one. Um, that, that's just what works for me. But I but I'm. You know, certainly now I'm sort of, I've just handed in um, the first draft of the sequel to The Siege. The, the up, sequel I'm, to The Siege? Bloody hell, so you've really kept your foot on the gas then. Yeah, I'm going to have to go in about 10 minutes. Yes, yeah, that's okay, no um, worries. But yeah, yeah. So to, so to pick up where I left off. So I've actually just handed in um, 
the first draft of of the sequel to the siege. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I mean, in, in fiction writing terms, every day is a school day. Um, and I've got an absolutely brilliant editor. I mean, she's just fabulous. Right. Um, and crime fiction is her thing. Right. Um, and so I'm uh, I, I haven't I haven't done an official writing course, mm. but, but I'm getting a masterclass from her brilliant and I've also uh, I, I mean over the last three or four years I've done a bit of advisory work with some other reasonably well-known authors um, as a kind of policing consultant if you like right and again in a sort of informal sense almost by osmosis I've mm. picked up stuff from them too but but you know what well, I think one of the best things that you can do if you want to be a writer or if you want to be a better writer is mm. to read as mm. much as you can and as mm. widely as you can and mm. not just in the genre or with the author that you feel most comfortable with but yeah. but yeah. read fiction and non-fiction read historical and contemporary read spy and thriller read romance but but just mm. read yeah the thing i find really amazing i'll we'll wrap up in a minute but um the thing i find really amazing john is that um today we've got the benefits of um electronic devices that you can sync across so I can write notes on my phone and which sync across to my yeah. MacBook and all of it, you know, when stuff occurs to you and makes the whole art of, of writing relatively painless and you can copy and paste and you can move stuff around. Think about how difficult it was for people like the, the Bronte sisters yeah, yeah. or people, you know, 150, 200 years ago who were writing in bloody longhand for God's sake, you know, well, I have to say, I, I, so one of the people I do a little bit of advisory work with is is Jeffrey Archer, and right. he still writes all of his books in longhand. Does he? Good. I mean, he, he has a PA who then does the the typing and stuff, but yeah, he still does all of his yeah. writing in pen and paper. Amazing. Listen, I'm conscious of your um, schedule, um, John. Thank you. Thanks a million for coming on and talking to me. I've really enjoyed it, and it's been lovely. You know, talking to you and actually sort of, as I say at the start, you know, we've had this frequent exchange of messages, but never actually met, you know, which is a bit weird. Um, but it's been a real joy. And um, I wish you the very, very best with not just the books that you've already written, but The Siege and whatever comes after The Siege. I shall watch with very great interest. Thanks ever so much. It's a pleasure. You take care and um, God bless. And uh, hopefully our paths will cross at some time in the near future and I'll buy you a beer. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Cheers, John. All the best. Bye bye. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.